Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast where we discuss traumas. We focus on the mental health crisis that are that is affecting our communities worldwide. I am your host LP Larry Penton. I am your fire medic CEO and I want to welcome everyone to a great discussion that we're going to have today. This podcast is being streamed audio only and we are being streamed via Anchor by Spotify. It will also be on all the streaming platforms, so Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many others. If you are triggered at any point during this podcast, please call 911 immediately if you need help. If you want other resources, we will have those listed in the description. We have a number of hotlines as well as websites that correlate with those particular hotlines that will be listed. And again, these conversations are going to be uncensored. We're going to have a bunch of information and a ton of resources available for the listener. Again, this is the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. We cover four areas, domestic violence, human and sex trafficking, sexually based offenses, and missing persons. Every podcast that we do, when the guest drops off, we cover a missing persons case for the last five minutes. Those cases are going to be specifically about an African-American or black and brown man, woman, or child because of the lack of media coverage that is given to black and brown missing men, women, and children. The missing persons perspective that we cover includes child abductions, kidnappings, as well as any runaway. I'd like to bring forward our special guest, Ms. Crescentia Ferguson-Brown. She's an entrepreneur. She's a tax preparer. She created Hush No More. She's the creator of Secrets Within a Child's Walls. Miss Mrs. I should say Brown. Welcome to the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, LP. Thank you for asking. You know, when we did our pre-interview, I'm telling you, you had me crying. I had you crying. Crying is authorized in our show. Crying is okay because it's it's a way to release pain. Again, we do unfiltered conversations. This is going to be some very heavy subject matter for the listeners as well as for you and I. So without further ado, let's go ahead and just jump right into your story. And again, for all the listeners, we're going to you're going to hear words like rape. You're going to hear words like substance abuse in terms of medication and many other things. Mrs. Brown, yes. 80% of this conversation is going to be you talking. I want you to tell your story. The mic is yours. Uh, you want me to start from anywhere or the beginning part? We're going to focus on your sexual assault. So... younger years I have to be had to be between I'm gonna have to say 
maybe kindergarten, first grade, as I'm recalling when everything started. And it started with one of my uncles, my mother's youngest brother, um, because he picks me up um, after school. So I, that's one of the most vivid memories I have with him. And then it was two other uncles as well. And this all, I had to be, like I said, I had to be like in first grade. I'm gonna say first grade up to fourth grade when it stopped with them. Um, and then also it was my, at the time I thought was my biological father, but when years went on, I found out he wasn't, he was just my stepdad, stepfather. I recall him touching me as well. It was late at night. I was in my bed and I just act like I was asleep. I didn't move. <clears throat> but that happened a few times with him. And as time went on, things calmed down with the sexual abuse, but the physical abuse started with my stepdad. I couldn't say if I said never mind or I forgot or it's something that he didn't like for some reason I I was always the one getting the beat beat up. I mean I had to say beat up. He beat my mom as well. Oh gosh. So that also went on for a long time. I couldn't wear I went to a Catholic school and then at the Catholic school wasn't allowed to wear pants. So I used to have to make up little stories before I had pants under my uniform. Just tell them I was cold, I was anemic, and I wore those because of the webs that was on my legs. And I didn't want anybody to see those webs. And then as time went on, those beatings kind of calmed down because I ran away from home to my grandmother's house. And I was telling her the stories about how he beat up my mom and he turned around and he was beating me up and I had to lie. So I believe he stopped beating me because I was telling, I started telling my grandmother and then what was happening. Oh, one second. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> So after um, told him, I told my grandmother about what happened to me. He left me alone. Like I said, he continued with my mom. And at this time, I still didn't tell anybody about the sexual abuse because I felt nobody would believe me. And also, I was told not to say anything because if I would say anything, I would get in trouble. So I lived with those secrets for a long time. And so maybe I just turned 51. I had to be about 49-ish when I started 
talking about it. So let me just take you back just a little bit to about, I think I had to be about 13. Yeah, between 13 and 14. We had a cousin living with us, a female cousin. Um, one day she had male company. <clears throat> so I was in my room, sweet, minding my business. Um, I woke up to someone on top of me. And when who I realized who it was, it was her boyfriend. So I was trying to get him off of me. But I couldn't because my cousin came and she helped me down, helped my legs down to where he could finish having his having sex with me. So I didn't tell anybody about that either. Cause she told me something like, I better not tell. Cause when they leave at the house, it would be a problem because normally my mom will work and she'll work long hours. Stepdad, he was a truck driver, so he barely was home at times. So I didn't tell. I kept it to myself. So, um, move up. That went past. That went on. Then after all that dealt with, I got pregnant at the age of 18. I had my first daughter at 19. She didn't, she almost lived a year. She died two weeks before her first birthday. Time went on. I got married. I had five children. And at times, those dark secrets will come back. And not able to tell anyone still. After I had my children, and then I lost my daughter, as I was getting therapy, they would, you know, they say, if you can't get out to trauma, it would manifest in other places. So I believe the way it was manifesting with me is, I started getting sick. I started having pain. I want to have you pause for a second before you get into that part. I wanna I wanna circle back around to the initial molestation because when we talked before and the reason I'm doing this is because there's so much of molestation that goes on in families, especially younger and younger people are getting victimized in terms of the assaults that are going on with them from uncles, aunts, cousins, other relatives, or what have you. In our interview, you told me that the first time that you were assaulted, you were about five or six years old. Um, and there were three uncles including your stepdad and a boy and and uh the cousin's boyfriend that came a little later on. Yeah. So you were in pre-K kindergarten when this happened. The three uncles 
and the stepdad, you said you reported that in 08 and 09, but you were 40 at that point. Yeah. Going back to that five and six-year-old, Cynthia Brown, what was that like to have those individuals that or blood relatives assault you like that? I mean, how did you deal with those issues just on a regular daily basis? I mean, I, I don't even know how I dealt with it. I guess I can say I learned how to block things. Okay. I block. I, I did. A, I could block. I could even do it now. Like, if something is like real traumatizing or whatever, I could. I can block, and I could just zone out completely. And that had to be the only way that I dealt with it. Then I had to block it out. Like the more I talk to my even my therapist more memories start coming up in it and it's more vivid memories that I can't even understand if somebody loved you, why would they do anything like that to you? Yes. So it, it's, it's it's just blocking the I call it the miracle part of the brain that know you was dealing with something so horrible and to keep you keep you covered somewhat in safety you learn how to block it away and that's at five to six years old you you you, you're naive you don't know i look at my five and six year old grandkids and I, i and i'm like why can somebody do that to a child at that age like what was so sick in your mind that you took that child's innocence away and altered the present in the future. They alternated, they altered, they just took what could have been a decent childhood away because that changed, that this changed my whole outcome of life after that. So it's blocking, just blocking it out. Blocking it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to ask. I remember when we talked about that, you said that there was zero arrests of those three uncles and the stepdad. Is that correct? Yeah, nobody. Um, Not at all. Nobody and only one uncle is still living. The other uncles passed away. Okay. The next couple of things that we're going to talk about is I want to have you talk about the cousin and her boyfriend that raped you. And the reason I'm including the cousin is because she is just as guilty, if not more, from my point of view in raping you. Rape is not all about penetration. Nope. Sexual assault is not all about 
being inside of somebody physically. Mm-hmm. You said that the boyfriend came into the room, laid on top of you, and started to make his way to be inside of you. And she comes in the room and she does not only not stop him, she actually holds you down in terms of holding your legs apart while he proceeds to penetrate you. She's just as guilty to me, if not even more, because she's a cousin. She's another person. She's another human being. She didn't try to stop it. She didn't bust him upside his head. She didn't kick him off. She didn't call 911 or call somebody else. She actually participated in you being raped. So to me, she's just as much of a rapist as he is. I want you to talk about that dynamic between you and the cousin. And then we'll go into your relationship with your husband. Okay. You know, if you say she's just as guilty as he is, and for her to be, you know, older cousin, um, she, she babysit me, but my youngest two brothers were never left in the house. It was just always her and I. And I can't, I couldn't understand like why the youngest two was always gone, but I was left home with her. So like I said, that that day it all happened, I, I, can, I can remember to the day I was in my room sleep. And normally I locked my door. I got into the habit as I got older to lock my door. I didn't lock my door that day. And how old were you? I had to be, I'm going to say 13, between 13 and 14. Okay. I had to be about 13 and 14. So you say you normally you lock your door and you didn't do it this time. Any particular reason or you just forgot or? I probably just forgot. I probably forgot. Okay. Because um, I had asthma real bad growing up, so I, most, I forgot most of my medicine and it made me sleepy. Okay. So I, I just forgot to lock it that day, and I was unaware that she even had company. Um, and like I said, I was asleep before I, I woke up, and he was just on top of me, and I'm like, why are you doing this? And, you know, get off. So my cousin realized that I was up and I'm, she's still at the door and I'm looking at her like, you're not going to help me? She didn't help me. She helped him. What was she saying, if anything, during this whole she process? She really didn't say much. She didn't say anything. I don't recall her saying anything. Did he say recall. anything? He was just like, stay still, stay still. Okay. Let's get this over. Just stay still. And I'm looking at him like, no. How old was he? My cousin was in her late 20s. So he had to be around the same age as her. So okay. she was like 20s, in her late 20s. So he had to be in his late 20s. Okay. As well. After. This rape happened. What happened afterwards? 
he finished, he got up, he left, and I looked at my cousin like, just gave her a look like you didn't even help. And she she left and she closed my door. I got up. She said, you better not say anything either. I just went in the bathroom, I took a shower. Threw away those clothes, those clothes I had on and threw away the sheets that was on my bed and just locked my door, stayed in my room until my mother came home. And she knew, she knew nothing. I didn't tell her anything. So I just kept it to myself. Was your silence because of fear or was it because of shame or you just didn't feel like well, what was the reason for your silence? I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything like that. Why did you remain silent? I didn't think nobody would believe me. And it was a little ashamed because I would, if I tell someone, oh, you let them. You know, growing up, I, I, I mat- my body matured okay. quicker than the average girl. Like most young black girls. Exactly. So, if I used to say, when certain, when boys used to make certain calls to me or when I'm walking and I said something to my mother, well, you, you just need to wear this and, and then you don't walk like this and they won't say anything. So, I just, if I tell her this happened, I don't know if she believed me or... I felt dirty. I felt, I just, I just kept it. I was just used to keeping secrets. So I just kept that. I just kept it. Okay. Let's go to you're married now. What age are you when you got married? Married at 23. And what year? 94. Okay, so this is 1994 now. You're 23 years old. You're married. You and your husband bring five beautiful children into the world. Is that correct? I, yeah, it was. I had five with him, and my the firstborn wasn't with him. My firstborn had passed away. Right. He had a different dad. Okay, peace be upon his soul. You said that your husband didn't know about any of your sexual assaults, including the rapes. He knew about one. He knew about one because he noticed how I act around one of the uncles uh, when we had a family gathering. And Finally, one day he asked, you know, why you act like this and why you move away when you're around this uncle? And finally, I just said it. I just told him. And he goes, what? What the fuck is wrong? What the fuck is wrong with why? I just told him, I don't know. He said, you didn't tell nobody? I said, honestly, I think you're the only one. I didn't tell anybody. And you see, that's why I keep my distance. So he just knew about the one. 
um, as time went on, um, things started happening, like my sickness and the surgeries and the addiction to the pain pills. Tommy, he got upset. He said, you need to go get help. You need to go get help. You need to talk to somebody about what happened. I started, but it, the look on the therapist's faces sometimes made me feel this is bad that I already felt. And they just gave me more medicine, more pills. On top of what I already was taking. I want you to I want you to pause there because that's very important that I want you to talk about a little bit. The, you said the look on the therapist's faces. How how what was that look that you were getting from them? Like really. That like that like a like a non-belief like they didn't believe it happened with those amount of people and no one knew. Then when they asked me questions and you know I couldn't I I, I could re- back then I could record record call some, but they wanted me to give them specific details. And at that time, I couldn't, I, I didn't want to speak particular, those details. They wanted me to go in deep details. And I told them, I don't want to. I can't right now. Okay. And it went to like a disbelief on their face. Well, take this when you feel this. Or when you feel anxious, take this. And when you need to calm down, take this. And you just take this pill daily. And we'll see you in a month. And I just go, okay. How was your relationship with your husband affected by all of these rapes? Ooh, it was affected hard. Even we get, we, we are better. We've been married 20, going on 28 years. Beautiful. It's better. It's It's been hard. It's It's been hard uh, to the point, at one point, we were just talking about separating. Because I, sometimes I couldn't have sex with my own husband. And it would play back in my memory. And then when the the addiction started, it put more strain on the marriage. We stopped talking. We stopped doing almost everything. Because then it was about me with surgery, me keeping my pills because didn't want to get sick. Because at that time, I started getting addicted and I didn't I didn't know that that 
was happening. I didn't realize I was getting addicted to the pills. Until my husband said, you're addicted to these pills. You need to stop taking the pills. You gotta stop it because it, it, it was it, it was not just ruining me, it was ruining us and it was ruining my kids. Because okay. the only thing I could do was just stay in the bed all day. When you got on the pain meds from your therapist, how many pain meds were you prescribed in terms of, well, let me restate that. Which pain meds were you prescribed? And then we'll get into the amount. Okay. I had the Percocet, Xanax, Oxycontin, morphine, and Dilaudid. So you were prescribed not only pain medications, you were also prescribed medications like benzos, like the Xanax. Yeah. Um, you were prescribed narcotic opioids, like the morphines. Mm-hmm. And so, and Dilaudid. For me, being a paramedic, I am way, way, way familiar with all of those. And I've treated patients in an emergency situation who have OD'd on a lot of those narcotic opioids with a medication called Narcan. I want you to talk about the addictive properties of those medications because I remember in our interview, you told me that you were taking so many pills a day that it just blew me away. Will you talk about that? Okay. <clears throat> so, when I was being, I'm going to start with the, the Percocet. So, you know, after a amount of time, you know, when you're on them, your body get immune. Yeah. You need more and more to take away the, the pain. Now, this pain was from your medical issues, not your mental health stuff, right? Exactly. Okay. This wasn't about, this was not given to you from your mental health therapist. This was given to you by your medical doctors. My medical doctor. Okay. The the, the, um, mental health doctor gave me um, Zoloft. Zoloft, okay. And Xanax. And Xanax. It was was another one, but I cannot recall. It was three. But I cannot recall... The Xanax was to calm me down. Okay. The Zoloft was for the depression. But it was another one. I cannot think of that other one. I cannot think of it. Mm. Maybe it'll come to me later, but I can't think of that third one. Um, the pain pills came in started with my because I had to have a hysterectomy so it started with my that with the pain I was getting from my heavy menstrual um, my fibroid tumors and all that so that's where the pain meds started to come from Um, that was that started with the Percocets Um, in the beginning I was prescribed one to two every six hours. 
um, <laughs> I would describe maybe a hundred, a hundred and twenty to a hundred eighty. The longer I was on there, and the higher I got of taking more than what I was supposed to. And when I started taking them in the beginning, it took away the pain, but I also loved the way it made me feel. Because it put me in a state that I didn't, I, I didn't have to think. Okay. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I could get up, I could do this, take it to kids, blah, 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 sit back down, take another one, three or four. And it put me where I didn't think of nothing. I didn't think about my past. I didn't think about what happened. I didn't think about anything. It went away, totally away. And I enjoyed it. I, I cannot lie, I enjoyed it. So as time went on with the Percocets, before they stopped working, I was up to 10 a day, if not more, with the Percocets. So when I went back to the doctor, I'm like, hey, these Percocets are not working anymore. He said, okay, I'm sti- I went for surgery, had the surgery. But he did get, when I got out of the hospital, I still was prescribed the Percocet, and that's when the oxy, Oxycontin came in, and I was taken to 20 milligrams of those. Okay. And I was being prescribed, still, that was 120. The Percocets went to 180. Those Oxycontin, 20 milligrams, and I was prescribed 120. At that time, I went up taking maybe 10. Now, and I'm not talking 10 for the day. I could take 10 at once. And give me a few hours later, I could take another 10. I may go to sleep, but I wake up, okay? Yeah. I wake up not thinking. And again, I can't lie, I like I, I loved it. I didn't have to think about nothing. And I loved not to think about nothing. I just took care of what was in front of me and left the past in the past. Then my back hurt my back. Then I'm hurting my back. This was the, where the other pain that started coming in. That was the delauded, right? That's when the Dilaudid got introduced. Now, they didn't take away the other two. I kept the other two. And then the Dilaudid got introduced. What year was this injury with the back? I had to say, was it like 07? No, no, no. That's that. Don't, it's going back. 2000. 2000. Okay. So in 2000, you injured your back, you're prescribed, allotted, and it's just adding to this not only euphoria, it's increasing the deadening of 
the emotions that you're having regarding the trauma that you experience from being raped multiple times. Mm-hmm. But you're still functioning. You're still, you're still what is termed a functioning addict. You're exactly. Going, you're going to work. You're taking care of the kids. You are cooking, cleaning, doing all the things that you would normally do. Exactly. Without missing a beat. Without missing a beat. If you knew, if you saw me, you wouldn't even think, you wouldn't even think that I was taking those pills like that. No one knew. I even, my husband didn't really, he didn't realize it in the beginning because that, that's how well I was hiding it. That's how well I hid it. He didn't know for a minute. How long did it take for him to realize that you were addicted? Just before I had my kidneys removed, my gallbladder removed. What year is that? That have to be about 2001. So a year after the back injury. Mm-hmm, 2001, 2002. Okay, year or two afterwards, okay. Um, he started picking it off. He's you know, started making certain comments. And he's like, I just don't understand why you got all those pills and they still, you know, he was saying things like that. So I was just telling him, I said, well, that's just how bad the pain is, damn it, that's how bad the pain is. So he was like, okay, you know, he didn't, he didn't push it too much then. Then I had, uh, oh, mm, oh, When my stomach, when my spot, I had a small bowel eruption. Okay. So, I think that would have to be around 2010. It was around 2010, 2011. Because I stayed in the hospital for a long time with that. Oh, yeah, it had to be around then. So I was a minute in the hospital. So with that pain, you know, I was getting the IV pain meds. And I think it was what you call the the PCA pump. So I had the PCA pump and still was getting the shot in the IV. So I think the PCA pump was set at maybe every 20 minutes I compress it. And then for breakthrough pain, they was giving me, I believe, the lot through the through the IV. Okay. <clears throat> when I came home from the surgery, the dilated and morphine. That's where those two was added in. <clears throat> because I went home with my stomach still open and, and all that stuff. So that was that was prescribed. Those two. And I still had the priors. Okay. So I kept all those pain pills because even though I had the back surgery, I still was, you know, receiving the pain. So the pain clinic still kept me on all those pain meds. I went up 20 
20 pills a day or 20 pills at a time? Like, how often were you doing it? <laughs> I was about to say, was it 20 pills in a day? Say, okay, it's going on, say it's one o'clock. I'll take about maybe, I'll say, 10. Okay. I grab the 10. And those most likely was the, per- the perks that I was grab. I would grab 10, take those 10, come back. Oh, okay, it's weird. No, and I will go back and take another 10, maybe 12. And I would take those. I will doze off. Wake back up. Pain's feeling good. I'm feeling good. Not thinking. And I'm cleaning up the house. Put the kids got home. Cooking a dinner before my husband walked through the door. Done. Here we go. It's um, it's four o'clock. I wasn't done. <laughs> I wasn't done. I will go take maybe ten more. Wow. So, I I don't know. Like I, I don't know. What, how? I woke up each time. And then when I think about it now, how many pills I was taking and what I was taking. Lord knows I shouldn't be walking. We're going to pause for for a few moments. This is the Trigger Warning Talk podcast where we discuss uncomfortable conversations. We have uncensored talk. We share information and we provide resources. At any time you may be triggered during this discussion and you need immediate help, please call 911. There will be a ton of resources listed in the audio description of this podcast that's going to be streamed on most of the main podcast platforms. So we're talking with Mrs. Chrysanthia Ferguson Brown. She is the creator of a number of things. She has entrepreneur skills. She's a tax preparer. She's the creator of Hush No More. Also the creator of Secrets Within a Child's Walls. We're talking to Mrs. Brown about her past in terms of the rape, the molestation from family members and one stranger. We're also talking about her relationship with her husband and how it was affected by the multiple rapes that she experienced as a young person. She also was including her addiction to not only mental health medications, but pain medications due to not only the traumas from those rapes, but some medical issues. Mrs. Brown. Yeah. 20 pills a day. When did you get, well, before I get to that, when did you say enough is enough in terms of the self-medicating? Um... It was the year my son, because I missed his high school graduation, the year my middle son um, came out of um, high school. Um, 
that's how I keep up with my marriage years. Okay. <laughs> he was born in 94. We got married in 94. He was born in April. We got married in August. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I call him my ba- my <laughs> my marriage baby. So um, I missed his graduation. And that was... Two thousand twelve, fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I hope I must say two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. Mrs. Brown, can you tell the audience why you missed your son's graduation? Of the of the year he graduated, I would say. Just a few weeks before graduation, graduation from high school, um, I decided I needed to go get help. Okay. No, let me back up. It wasn't a few weeks. It was about a month. Because I only post women for 30 days, but I wound up having to stay for an extra 30 days. And within that time, because of my addiction, I wound up missing his graduation. Um, he said he understood, but I felt bad. I, I, I really felt bad. Um, but I did get to stay. I did get to see him graduate. They wound up screening it for me. And it wasn't the same as being there, but I got to see him graduate it. So that was hard. And even to today, when I see him, I'm always going to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But he said that it was okay. He understood. But at least I got home in time before he went into the Army. Um, and I made it to his <clears throat> boot, camp, his boot camp graduation. Then when he graduated from the um, Airborne Academy or whatever it's called, um, I got to see him do that. That was that, you know, all because I, you know, had to just the pain pills and couldn't see myself anymore. I felt bad. Still, like I said, I still feel bad. And I missed it. This graduation. You know, when you talk about taking all those pills. I thought about when I was working actively in EMS and I thought about all the patients that I've seen who had OD on most of them were narcotic opioids. Mm-hmm. So we're talking illegal street drugs in most of these cases, fentanyl, heroin, oxy, not too much of the other narcotic opioids that you were prescribed like Dilaudid. You know, that was extremely rare for me to have a patient who OD'd on the street from a Dilaudid. I did have some people who they didn't necessarily OD, but they ingested a lot of their prescription medications, which were the benzodiazepines, or we call them benzos for short, the Xanaxes. Mm-hmm. You know, 
the Ativans, all of your benzo drugs to help you with your depression issues, with anxiety issues, with primarily mental health issues. And so you as a patient were being prescribed medications from your medical doctor as well as your mental health therapist. When you talk about those issues to these professionals, what are they telling you specifically in terms of the end game? Like what's what's the ultimate goal? Because I may be able to I may be able to prescribe you a medication if I'm a medical doctor treating your medical medical injuries. I may be able to prescribe you some medication in terms of helping you with your mental health issues, whether it's an antidepressant, antipsychotic, benzodiazepines, whatever it is. There has to be an end game that they want to have focused with you because you can't just give a person a pill and like, okay, I'll holler. You know what I mean? So like, what is that conversation like with you? What was the end game plan of action? Well, when it came down to where I needed the surgery for my hysterectomy, that one was the end game after surgery, maybe after the six to eight weeks, mm -hmm. the meds supposed to have stopped. Okay. Um, then when that issue stopped, my gallbladder, I had to have my gallbladder taken out. So I got re-prescribed again, pain meds. And then in between all of that, that's when the back issue started. So I was taking the meds for the back. Then I had the small bowel and large bowel. Um, um, what they call it? Eruption. I'm probably saying it wrong. That caused a major surgery, which left me open in the ICU for a few days. So when I came home from that, I had pain meds for that. Now it's still I'm getting pain meds for my back as well. Um, so it was like a lot of things was like overlapping each other. And then in a mix of that also was the therapy. So, I mean, the psych. And so that was the infrastructure, the Zoloft, and the Xanax for the anxiety. And I still cannot remember. I'll be that third med. I cannot remember it for this. Can't recall it for nothing. Now, was this a psychiatric medication or was this just a medical prescription? That one was the three, the, the psychic okay. um, medication. And, it, it, and that one was also strong. I can't recall the name. What was it? <laughs> what was it supposed to help you with, even though you don't remember the name of it in particular? It was supposed to be a mal anxiety medicine as well like if if i wasn't that bad to take the xanax i could have took the other one okay was it ativan so, or? i think it, I'm, I, I, 
or, or lorazepam. That's the medical name of it, lorazepam. Lorazepam, I believe that's it. Okay, so that's a benzo. So you got Ativan or lorazepam, you got Xanax or alprazolam, and you have Versed or midazolam. Woo. So those are your main three benzos that people typically are prescribed or given. Yeah, I believe it was one of those. Okay. Because yeah, because I'm, I'm telling you, if I wasn't bad, I can take that one. But when I got bad, I can take the Xanax. Okay. Because the Xanax, I was able to take up to supposed to take up to two as needed. What were you taking? Oh, let me say, and I'm sorry, how many were you taking? I was taking about maybe five or seven at all. At a time? At a time. How many would you say on average per day were you taking? Just of that, just of that benzo. Mm. I got a good count of those about seven. And I'm picturing myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to say almost 14. 14 of those. In a day. In a day. And you were taking how many of the pain meds a day? Ooh, I never, I never counted that. Like that. The pain med, if I'm doing that per day, I can take up to... Oh God! I was taking up to about over twenty a day. Okay. So this... that and with that, so it's about almost thirty pills in one day. Almost thirty pills in a day. That is just phenomenal. When I hear people talk about their medication addiction, whether it be pain meds, whether it be including narcotic opioid pills or we're talking about mental health prescribed medications like your benzos your antipsychotics your depression your antidepressants i'm just always amazed when i have conversations with folks about that because i know family members that were addicted to pain meds were addicted to psychiatric medications and it's just the numbers. Like I'm going to do a, probably another podcast on my pre-hospital EMS talk, talking with individuals about just addictions. Mm -hmm. Because as a paramedic, we deal with 911 calls in relationship to ODs or over-ingestions. Sometimes people are non-compliant with those things for different reasons and that garners an EMS response. So that's gonna be a whole nother show on a whole nother podcast that we do, which is again, the pre-hospital EMS talk. I wanna move on because when we talked about your addiction, at some point you said, I need help. What brought that on? <sighs> Kind 
tired. I was really just getting tired. I couldn't even work anymore after that. Like when it got to the point, <clears throat> if I ran out, um, I wouldn't go to work because I, I was going through real bad withdrawals. And I got very good at manipulating, I'm saying I know. Living with my doctors, I got really good at going <clears throat> to the ER. I got became a pro. So when I would choose to go to the ER or tell my doctor I lost my scripts or um, tell my doctor the pain is it's not working. Um, it's getting bad, so I can't sleep. I tell anything for them to write me enough script. Okay. And it was working. It was working. And I lost jobs because if I didn't have it, I wasn't going to work. I was going to find another way to get me the pain pills I need. And it, it started taking over my daily life. I couldn't even do daily things anymore and again nobody couldn't tell no one knew the difference <clears throat> no one knew the difference of it so i just got tired i just got really really tired will you tell me how long this addiction is going on from when you started to this point where you say i need help how much how many years has passed? LP, it was years. I, I'm going to tell it was half of my adult life. <clears throat> Everything started from my first health issue, which was my menstrual that caused me to have the hysterectomy. I was 30, I'm going to say 31, 32. Okay. All the way up until my mid 40s. I had to be about maybe 40, 43, maybe. 43, when I started notice I couldn't do it. So about 45, I probably 43, 44 okay. that I decided it was enough. You go to seek therapy. Can you talk about that? Because you said you got you have a phenomenal therapist that you still see. Uh, just tell us briefly about the person that you found and how that individual helped you and is helping you now. Oh wow! It uh, this doctor was it, she's amazing, and it seemed like she was the only one that really got what I was trying to say, even if I couldn't articulate it. Okay. Right. 
if you listen. And she didn't push me go. She didn't push me to go any farther than what I needed to go. And she allowed that relationship to just take its course. Okay. And I did have to. I did have to go back on antidepressant and it did wonders. Um, I just, I'm just, I can't, I just can't express how thankful I am. And she's African-American. And I, I just, like I tell her every time we do our session, how grateful I am because she didn't push me to go into great detail of my of the past of me being molested. She didn't push me to try to tell details. Okay. And um, that speaks volumes because yeah. if you're not ready, you're not ready. You didn't say no to her that you wouldn't talk about it. You just said, I'll talk about it when I'm ready. And she said, okay. Yeah, exactly. She told me to take it as far as to where I'm comfortable. Almost like what you did when we had the pre-interview. Yes. And you gave me those safety words, you know, that's similar to what she does. You know, let me go as far as I'm comfortable. When I get uncomfortable, she just told me to stop speaking mm-hmm. and she would take it as a sign that I can't go on anymore. And that was it. That's what real help is supposed to be about. You know, sometimes I think people lose sight of that, especially professionals. And this is part of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast and I, I'm producing this particular type of podcast because I want to be able to talk to other professionals, whether they're first responders, other mental health professionals, and the public at large. It's about advocacy and awareness. We all need to be continuously educated because things change. Things We learn things, things that we did yesterday. We know darn well we shouldn't do that ever again because it not only didn't help, but it made things worse. You know, so everything evolves in some form or fashion. When you talked about your husband, you told me something that I really admire. The fact that you guys have been married for 28 years and counting. You've been sober for seven years now. What does your husband say about your sobriety? He said he always knew I can do it. Okay, he always knew I can do it. And he knew one day everything was going to work out. And then, you know, he knew it was something more deep inside that was causing it. In many ways, especially with me starting my business and not giving up, and he he looks at me even though I'm not where I want to be, and he always says, "I know you're gonna get there. It's gonna take some time." And then 
normally I would stop, do something and stop. And then this time I'm not doing that within the past few years. I'm just going on with it. It may be hard, but I'm going through it. And he just said, I know you can, and I know you will. I'm just thankful for him for just trusting me and believing me that uh, I will go far. That just nothing is going to stop me this time. And he knew that one day I would be completely free from taking all those pills. What I want to do is have you briefly talk about your business. You have Hush No More that you created. And you also are the creator of Secrets Within the Child Walls. Can you tell us about that? Well, Hush No More is a, a room that I was doing on Clubhouse. Okay. Um, Secrets Within the Child's Walls also was a topic under Hush No More, under Hush. And the reason how I came up with those names, especially Hush, you know, because when a child is told to do something or the predator is coming after the child, the main thing you're being told is Hush, be quiet, don't talk, don't tell nobody. Those are the phrases we hear after and after and after again when that predator is coming after that child, it's hush, be quiet. And I have to find my journal. In one of my journals, I remember just scribbling, you know, like just scribbling. And I learned that was another thing she taught me is the journal. So I was journaling, but for some reason, I kept writing hush, 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 then secrets. Because secrets that the secrets of the child's walls, when you don't speak it, your secret stays within. Okay. All the way in. So the walls is like taking the secrets and it's soaking them up. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, just, it's not going to allow it to hurt you, but it's still hurting at the same time. So when they, when the innocent, and I'm looking at my granddaughter whether she's here and she's four, and I'm thinking I was, the next year or so, I was still little like her. Like, who can do that? And you never think a child that young can hold those, those secrets. So there go the secrets within the child's walls. Because that baby is holding a secret. And she should not. She should not be old and at that age. That is amazing. I hear so many people that have talked about their traumas, especially in regard to sexual abuse, say almost the same thing. I was told to be quiet. I heard hush. I heard someone motion and say, shh. I heard someone tell me, I bet not say anything. You better not talk about this ever. I better not hear you telling somebody. Nobody ever better come to me saying that you said I did this to you 
house or what have you. That's very powerful. I mean, I got a visual in my head of seeing a child being abused sexually because it even happens with physical abuse, but I'm just focusing right now on the sexual assault portion of it, since that's what we're talking about also. And I can just envision that child, like you said, some little kid being scared to death, especially after being traumatized so violently. And this person is telling them, shh, or hush. And for you to say no more is just empowering, to say the least. Ms. Brown, how can people get in touch with you to either talk with you about Hush No More or Secrets in the, Within the Child's Walls or any of your other endeavors? Um, they can reach me, they can send me an email and that would be at Cynthia is C-E-N T-H-I-A A Brown B-R-O-W-N at gmail.com and also they can look me up on the on Clubhouse, which is under Cynthia Brown, and as well as IG is under Mrs. Cynthia. That's C R E N C E N T H I A Brown, and that's my um, IG page name. And you can reach me on either one of those, and I will get right back to you. Mrs. Brown. We definitely got to do some more work together and collaborate to help people not only understand and be aware that they have to talk about these things. We also want to spread the message of advocacy that you have someone in your corner that can be right by your side in that foxhole to help you overcome any of these traumas that you are experiencing and not just be a survivor, to be someone who's gonna be thriving in yeah. spite of those issues. I wanna thank you so much for spending your time on the Trigger Wanna Talk podcast. We will have your contact information listed in the description. And again, if you are triggered or were triggered at any point during this podcast, we have a number of resources listed in the description of this audio podcast when it's put out. Mrs. Brown, I want you to have a great weekend. Enjoy those children that I hear in the background. Thank you for protecting their innocence and thank you for being the woman that you are. You have so much strength, courage, and wisdom. I love talking to you, my North Carolina native. Thank you so yeah. much, so much, so much. I want to wish you peace and blessings forevermore. And we'll talk soon. Thank you, LP. You have a great day as well. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to wrap up the Trigger Want to Talk podcast as we always do with the missing person case. This case involves an African-American young male. His name is Corey Bigsby. I'm sorry, his name is Cody Bixby. Cody Bixby. I want to play a news story from newsnationnow.com. 
The disappearance of a little boy in Virginia is the focus of our missing series tonight. Four-year-old Cody Bigsby vanished six weeks ago, but police are still trying to figure out exactly when he was last seen. Cody's father was the one who called 911 to report him missing, but after three days of searching and questioning by police, the dad wound up behind bars. News Nation's Tom Shad is with Wavy TV, our station in Virginia, and he has the very latest on the investigation tonight and the search for Cody. In Hampton, Virginia, the community's hope is on clear display. A giant sign at the apartment complex. I don't want him to get wet. Sit this right here. Residents add toys, flowers, balloons, and their promises to a growing tribute to four-year-old Cody Bigsby. I'll put some balloons, like a, a dump truck, and um, some lights. Cody's father, 43-year-old. We're going to pause there. We have a little technical difficulties. Edit point. Mrs. Quincynthia Ferguson Brown is such a phenomenal, phenomenal woman and human being. We're going to dedicate a song to her by NDRE entitled Strength, Courage, and Wisdom. We end every podcast talking about a missing persons case. Our focus primarily is on those individuals that are black and brown, men, women, and children who do not get the same energy in regards to media attention for their cases. So we're gonna to focus today's missing person story on a young kid, Cody Bigsby, four years old from Hampton, Virginia. This story that I'm about to play is posted on newsnationnow.com. I will put the link to the story in the description of this audio podcast. This story was posted March 16th of 2022. The disappearance of a little boy in Virginia is the focus of our missing series tonight. Four-year-old Cody Bigsby vanished six weeks ago, but police are still trying to figure out exactly when he was last seen. Cody's father was the one who called 911 to report him missing, but after three days of searching and questioning by police, the dad wound up behind bars. News Nation's Tom Shad is with Wavy TV, our station in Virginia, and he has the very latest on the investigation tonight and the search for Cody. In Hampton, Virginia, the community's hope is on clear display. A giant sign at the apartment complex. I don't want him to get wet. Sit this right here. Residents add toys, flowers, balloons, and their promises to a growing tribute to four-year-old Cody Bigsby. I'll put some balloons, like a, a dump truck, and um, some lights. Cody's father, 43-year-old Corey Bigsby, called 911 on the morning of January 31st to say the boy was not in their apartment. Police launched a massive search effort, bringing in federal, state, and other local agencies. 
the evidence that we have does not completely match the stories that we have received at this point. After three days of searching and police questioning the father, he was charged with seven counts of felony child neglect. Police say he left his four children, all age five or younger, home alone on multiple occasions. And police say Corey is the only person of interest in Cody's disappearance. The investigation does not indicate that he was abducted. There's just no reason to believe it. Neighbors say they hardly saw Cody or his siblings outside and never saw an adult around. I've never heard of an adult. Except I've never seen an adult take a trash out. I've never seen I've never seen anybody come and go out of there. Police are asking for the public's help to determine when the four-year-old was last seen by anyone outside his family. The chief is not raising hopes in this case. The evidence about what likely occurred has been very clear. There's little about this that has been mysterious. Now, questions about the police interrogation of Cody's father and how it could affect the case. My understanding is that there was a request for an attorney and for the ability to remain silent. The chief admits it was mishandled. He says Bigsby initially declined an attorney but later changed his mind. The questioning went on without one. My assessment is that his desires should have been honored. They weren't. Bigsby's bond appeal now delayed until April. His attorney proclaims his innocence. Mr. Bigsby is very concerned about Cody's whereabouts. And the community continues to search. Obviously, the longer we go, uh, the more tragic it feels and police chief mark talbot from hampton removed the original investigator there is a new detective on the case but there have been no updates in weeks Corey bigsby is behind bars on child neglect charges while we await the next phase in the disappearance of his son cody Reporting live from Portsmouth, Virginia, Tom Shad. Now back to you, Marnie. Tom, it's tragic to see that legal obstacles would get in the way of the answers and finding this little boy. What more do we know about the last time that someone saw Cody? There are a lot of holes here, Marnie. Uh, the timeline, quite frankly, is unclear. Now, police initially asked the public uh, to submit tips if they'd seen Cody since Christmas time. Recall that he was reported missing in January, the end of January, and then they moved the timeline back to the middle of November, and they also released a photo of Cody dating back to the summer, saying that was the last picture they could get of Cody. So you see there's at least a two-and-a-half-month window between November and the end of January, plus another hole with the photo of Cody being released. Um, they have a lot of uh, uh, holes to fill here in their timeline to establish their case. So that is uh, quite challenging for them. Uh, real quick, Tom, it's incredible to see these images of the community responding in the search. We saw that billboard a moment ago. How is this case impacting the people who live around there? Incredible. Uh, it has greatly affected the community. So imagine, uh, you know, everybody has thought to themselves, what if that were my child? So they've all come together uh, to organize citizen search parties nearly every day 
uh, since Cody disappeared. Residents are also active on social media trying to solicit tips and information to help detectives. And they're also trying to keep this story out in front of local media as much as they can. They don't want anybody to forget the name Corey Bigsby. And we don't want anybody to forget the name Cody Bigsby. There's a 1-800 number set up by the FBI. It's 1-800-CALL-FBI. Again, 1-800-CALL-FBI for any information regarding the whereabouts of Cody Bixby. Or you can contact the Hampton, Virginia Police Department. Again, any information regarding the whereabouts of Cody Bixby, contact the Hampton, Virginia Police Department and or the FBI's hotline 1-800-CALL-FBI. I want to thank you all for joining the Trigger Warning Talk podcast. I'm your host, LP. Until next time.